Welcome back to Presidential Podcast. This is Philip. And this is Robert. And we're doing our third part on Eisenhower. We finished off a bit abruptly our last episode where we were talking about the occupation had was well underway. Eisenhower decides that he's going to retire from the military and he's going to go be president of Columbia University. So why don't we start off there? So, um, it's hard to say exactly which factor was the most important in convincing Ike to leave the army and take up this high profile, high visibility academic position as the president of the Ivy League University, Columbia University, which is located in New York City. Um, the containment policy uh, by this time was pretty well underway. Eisenhower may have felt that he had done what he could to implement it, uh, that his work as the Supreme Allied Commander uh, Europe, SACUR, was pretty well completed, decided to take a sense of closure on it, turn it over to someone else. Uh, a younger person, Eisenhower by this time, was in his late 50s. Um, he certainly uh, was interested in politics. Uh, both of the major parties had approached him with offers for their presidential nominations. Uh, so he was interested in exploring that avenue. And there may have been some monetary or pecuniary uh, considerations. I mean, by now, Ike had served uh, something like 35 years in the Army. At that time, the pay rates for military officers were not very impressive. I mean, now they might be somewhat better, but back then they were pretty penurious. And I may have felt that this was his last shot at establishing a decent uh, financial uh, position before retirement, before actually uh leaving the active workforce. So there were a number of personal, professional, military, and other reasons uh, pushing Ike's decision. He and Mamie probably wanted to be back in the States. Uh, New York, arguably, and I think there's a very strong case for this, is the cultural the political and the business capital of the United States. I mean, people will say, well, the political capital is in Washington, D.C. And yes, uh, Washington, D.C. most certainly is the seat of government. Uh, it's a massive, uh, it's become a massive city. Uh, the U.S. government is a massive undertaking. Uh, taking up some 21, 22, 23 percent of the U.S. GDP, which is now running something like three and a half trillion dollars back in Eisenhower's time. Of course, the number was much smaller, probably around 50 billion. But the GDP was much smaller. The government took up a pretty big portion of it. But New York is where the ideas come from. New York is the place that the influential people from all regions of the country go and went to exchange ideas, to meet each other, to take each other's measure, to make the plans to move the country forward. So Ike, naturally, thinking of a national leadership role, uh, gravitated towards New York. Plus, Ike had been living in Paris, even though it was post-World War II Paris, a devastated city which had been occupied by a totalitarian uh, dictatorship for a number of years. Nevertheless, compared to Paris and London, where he lived before he moved to Paris, uh, 
there aren't a lot of U.S. cities that are comparable to those two foreign capitals. So New York probably looked pretty decent to Ike, and, and he went and took up residency in, in Morningside Heights and became the president of Columbia University, where he met the movers and shakers uh, and basically changed his image from being a general to being a, a pretty versatile and accomplished civilian administrator. So things went swimmingly during his tenure as president of Columbia? Uh, Ike made the contacts that he needed to make. He established that he had the intellectual candle power to administer a diverse array of professional liberal and liberal arts schools, the engineering school, schools of foreign languages, uh, the business school, all the faculties at, at Columbia, and that he looked decent in civilian clothes and he could function in an environment which wasn't a military environment. You think about you know, a military environment, highly regimented, very clear lines of command, very, very clear procedures. You go to academe and we literally come to uh, a management milieu which we could charitably uh, characterize as herding cats. So the, you know, the, the, the academes, the academicians prize their independence they are the experts in the field. They are the authorities in their field. A person administering them has to uh, have a lot, have very versatile management skills right. to so, prosper in that so environment. So this is kind of in the lead up to his nomination and the 1948 election. Can you explain the... 52. 52, I'm sorry. 48 was Truman's second term. Well, first and a half. Right. Do you, can you explain the um, domestic situation leading up? Why does he choose to go with the Republicans? What what is um, Dewey had lost twice for the Democrats? So Republicans. Right. Dewey had lost. Right. That's right. Dewey had lost twice for the Republicans. Truman is done. Why do, Why does um, Why is Truman done? What are the What is everyone? Um, What's the situation going into the 52 election? So, Churchill said it about somebody else. But Truman, very truly, was a man about whom we can say Truman was a modest man with a lot to be modest about. Uh, he was not an intellectual giant. He was pretty much machine politician from one of the more corrupt and inept political machines that existed at the time. Uh, he had been a junior officer in the First World War, relatively successful, but still just a junior officer. He had gone into business after the First World War, had failed, gone bankrupt, spent decades paying back the uh, debts that he owed from his failed business venture. But Truman was tough. I mean, Truman had grit. Uh, when he became a county judge, which in Missouri, which is Truman's home state, meant a county, part of a county executive board that ran uh, one of the largest counties in the state. He showed that he was tough. He was independent and he was tough. When he was in the U.S. Senate, even though he was almost universally panned for being the senator from Pendergast, Pendergast being the name of the corrupt Democratic boss in Truman's home area of Kansas City, Missouri, uh, Truman showed a lot of independence. He uh, formed a Truman Commission and 
traveled throughout the United States at his personal expense, in his personal car, looking at uh, purchasing, procurement, training, and made very hard-hitting recommendations to reduce graft, corruption, waste, inefficiency in the operations of the armed forces, which were expanding from well under a million men to over 12 and a half million men. So Truman, you know, uh, for all his limitations, he had a good head on his shoulders. He understood that he was responsible for running the government and for making the top level decisions. He took that responsibility and he gave it, he gave it his best effort and it turned out his best effort was, was, was pretty close to uh, a really good effort. I mean, he had excellent advisors with people like Clark Clifford, Dean Acheson, uh, General of the Army's George Marshall and others. But Truman was very ingenious, very communicative, delegatory. He came up with uh, a whole array of social programs to deal with the demobilization, to uh, help the returning GIs uh, transition well into civilian life. Truman, essentially a southerner, essentially a small town, white, middle class individual, realized that desegregation and racial equity, racial equality, were important American priorities. Presidents like Theodore Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, uh, President Wilson, and the Republicans who served during the 1920s didn't do much for racial justice. Truman took it on. And as a Southern, uh, primarily a Southern uh, politician. Why are you calling him a Southern politician? He was from Kansas City. That's Midwest. Missouri is a Southern state. And Kansas City is, and, and, and Midwesterners are not that racially liberal. Okay. Uh, but, but, but Truman's base was more the Southern, the Southern demo, demo, democracy. I mean, uh, the South still and particularly the Southern Bourbons, the Southern Conservatives, were still a core constituency of the Democrats. And they were Truman's main constituents. And he took them on. They walked out of his convention when he got nominated in 1948, founded their own party, ran against him. Uh, Truman had a lot of guts. He had a founded lot of political courage. Huh? The Dixiecrats which later became the American Independent Party. And they ran a candidate? They ran as a segregationist. They ran Strom Thurmond. Okay. The senator from South Carolina. And did he get it? This is in 52 or 48? 48. And did they run somebody in 52? No, they didn't run again until 68 when Governor Wallace ran why for did, Why did Truman decide to hang up the cleats and, and not run again in 52 when he could have? So there's an old joke. Uh, if you get a beer... Uh, and it's well poured, and it's served to you, and it's got no head, it's called a Truman beer. In other words, beer with no head is Truman. So Truman was seen as being not very bright. He didn't have a college degree. Uh, He had uh, problems similar to President Grant's in that he had a certain group of friends who he trusted implicitly and they stole and they embezzled and they uh, showed a lot of favoritism which Truman famously had been a favoritism buster and an anti-corruption campaigner and now suddenly as president his most trusted aides were engaging in all kinds of did, corrupt uh, did behavior he, did he choose to end it in, in- after his term in 48, or did the Democrats say, no, we don't want to run you again? Well, Truman would have run again. But it became clearer and clearer to him that the containment policy was unpopular. The Marshall Plan 
even though in, in retrospect it's seen as one of the great achievements of American diplomacy at the time it wasn't that popular it was mixed I mean there were definitely people who backed it but it was very mixed um, the Korean War had broken out so we had a major uh, engagement going on in the Far East which was draining resources and killing a lot of guys uh, MacArthur his name pops up again had uh, executed a daring and entirely ingenious a masterstroke of combat uh, an amphibious landing at Incheon around the waist of Korea liberated Seoul uh, and was marching towards the Chinese border um, I personally think that uh, MacArthur misrepresented his activities to President Truman President Truman met him at Guam at MacArthur's behest. I mean, Truman ordered him back to Washington, but MacArthur refused to come to Washington. And after uh, very testy negotiations, they settled on meeting at Guam. Mm -hmm. uh, so the president had to go across, halfway across the Pacific to meet his commander. Uh, Truman gave him a medal and then fired him. So Truman looked really bad. After that, uh, after that incident, and that was just kind of typical of the kind of uh, of the way things went for Truman after his real skin of the teeth victory in 1948. Mm -hmm. um, so he wasn't right. He only beats Dewey by a little bit. So 52 is an open an open seat. The presidency is is uh, uh, a senator named Estes Kefauver, Kefauver from Tennessee. Uh, challenged Truman in there were like four primaries back then and Estes Kefauver uh, didn't beat Truman but embarrassed Truman in the New Hampshire primary and whatever other early primary they had back then so it became clear to Truman that he wasn't going to get renominated did Truman groom a successor? so Truman punted refused to uh, accept Kefauver as the nominee. It's somewhat similar to LB, how LBJ was. Yeah. And maneuvered to get the governor of Illinois, Adlai Stevenson, nominated for the presidency Why? by the Democrats. Kefauver took the second spot. Why did he want Adlai to Stevenson was a liberal. Uh... He was a good administrator. He was seen as being somebody who favored the liberal uh, domestic agenda that Truman had implemented. He was seen as being someone who would be uh, able to stand up to the Russians in, in Europe and to the Chinese communists in the Far East. And because he was a governor, and because he was a governor in a state that's pretty distant from Washington, D.C., he wasn't tainted by the anti-communism uh, fear-mongering that was going on in Washington, D.C., and which was hurting mainstream Democrats. He wasn't seen as being part of the corruption that was associated with Truman. In other words, Stevenson was seen as being very independent. Uh, they probably knew each other. They probably had a good working relationship, but I don't think they were personal friends. Was all right, and so analyze Stevenson is to the left, but since he's not in Washington, he's not getting brought up. He's not getting caught up in the McCarthy and McCarthyism. Right. Does what are analyze Stevenson's weaknesses as a candidate? Well, it turns out that even though he's a governor, and even though he's seen as a fairly dynamic governor, he's not real decisive. He's, he's relatively indecisive. Uh, being that he was a governor and some kind of uh, state-level politician, he wasn't necessarily up on the most recent events in foreign affairs 
Of course, the Korean War hurt him. He didn't have a, a, a military record, didn't have a particularly good plan for dealing with the Korean War, didn't have any ties with anybody in the military. Uh, and he had a reputation for being cheap. Um, there was a joke, which I can't remember exactly how it went, but it had to do with Adlai Stevenson thinking that a dime was a great tip. Uh, there's a picture, a famous picture of him uh, reading a newspaper with his feet up and having a big hole in his shoe. But his, his, his biggest failing was that he was too cerebral and the American population just, just didn't warm up to him. Eisenhower, who contested with Taft, Mr. Conservative, the senator from Ohio, the son of President Taft and the former Chief Justice, uh, Eisenhower was seen as genial, likable, versatile, effective, and he was seen as a man who could handle Korea. And Ike, in fact, campaigned. One of his campaign promises was, I will go to Korea. You know, the uh, implication being he was going to go over there and straighten things out. Did he blow Taft out of the water in the primary? They had a couple primaries. Um, Taft really didn't have much of a ground game. Uh, Eisenhower didn't know a lot about politics, but he was a delegatory kind of administrator, mm -hmm. so he could recognize talent. Mm -hmm. He could recognize uh, people who knew what they were doing. He had a man named Doherty working for him who was a, a, a wonderful political campaign operator, and uh, Eisenhower wouldn't quite handle it. So, in 52, Stevenson, Adelaide Stevenson versus Eisenhower, how does the election turn out? Is there anything that you think is noteworthy about talking about the election? Uh, it was the first election, first of all, in, 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 in 1948, the Republicans took control of the Congress for the first time since 1932. Okay. In 1952, Eisenhower Nixon was the first Republican ticket, ticket elected since Hoover in 1928. So the shift away from the Democrats, who had had a stranglehold on the national government, and who had a lot of state governments mm -hmm. un under their control at the time, to the Republican Party was quite, uh, quite, quite a change in things. That it was Eisenhower who was almost apolitical, almost, you know, a novice in politics, had no known strong political views, ran under the uh, banner of progressive republicanism, whatever that was. Uh, was 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 an amazing change. In the South, in particular, the Republican Party was seen as a clean break from the past. Modern, business oriented, good administrators, and a lot of Southerners who were dyed in the wool Democrats, always voted Democrat, saw. A, a Republican candidate they could vote for. Well, the but I mean, if you look it, looking at the results from '52, I don't know what the numbers were in the South, but Stevenson still takes the South. Stevenson definitely took the South. I mean, he had the Southern Bourbons behind him, but the beginning. The only one he missed is Tennessee. Right. The beginning of of the New South and okay. the 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 dynamic Republican Party which was to develop in the South uh, under Nixon's Southern strategy, definitely formed in 1952 two things, two things under Eisenhower's candidacy. Two things I want to point out. When Eisenhower was kind, that I want to bring up, Eisenhower was kind of in between, at least publicly, was seen to be in between the uh, 
Republicans and Democrats heading into this thing. And there's a, at least insinuations that Truman wanted Eisenhower for the Democrats before he tapped Stevenson. And was it clear to everyone that Eisenhower was going to go with the Republicans? So had he already had he already met you know like basically joined up with them? No. And most, then the second thing I want to bring up is why did he choose Nixon? Most of the people I knew who remembered it uh, were fairly young. In 1951, 1952, you know, in their late twenties, maybe some even in their early twenties, and and. My uh, high school social studies teacher was a teenager. Uh, but they remembered distinctly that Eisenhower did not have a distinct political identity and that both parties sought him as their nominee. Uh, I think he took the Republicans partly because he didn't want to run against so many Democrats who he had worked with although running as a Republican, he ran directly against them. But I think Eisenhower also said, look, you know, the Democrats have been in power 20 years. It's time for a change. And my most potent appeal to the American people is that things are going to change. Things are going to be different. And I think Eisenhower... Uh, Pennsylvania Dutch background, Midwestern personal roots, military career, probably saw the Republicans as being somewhat more sympathetic to his overall worldview than than the Democrats were, even back then. Okay. Um, as far as Nixon, uh, back then the West Coast was an essential part of the Republican coalition. They wanted California. Nixon was a senator from California. Nixon uh, was young. Nixon had hair. You know, I mean, Stevenson and Eisenhower both were bald. Um, Nixon was a a military officer, was seen as a dynamic political figure, maybe even as a dashing political figure. Was Nixon, did Nixon, um, and Nixon wasn't that strong that he presented a threat to Eisenhower. Did Nixon represent a further right? Uh, you know, Taft, he ran against Taft, who was right wing, right? Did Nixon represent more of a right wing? So, so, so obviously, balance? on domestic issues, Nixon was a concession to the Taft wing. A bridge to the Taft wing. Which is the more conservative. Which is the more conservative. On foreign policy, Eisenhower had a visceral dislike of Bolshevism, of communism. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nixon shared that. So Nixon probably was right, right with Ike. There probably wasn't a lot of daylight between them on uh, foreign policy issues. Nixon knew a lot about the Pacific. He had served there as a commander, as a you know mid-level officer, uh, naval officer in logistics. So Nixon knew the Far East. So you know if, if there was going to be a war there and we were going to either extricate ourselves for it or continue to pursue it, Nixon had value. Uh, as a potential Far Eastern expert. Uh, Nixon also seemed to have had good relations with McCarthy, who was a problem for Eisenhower, which I'll discuss in a moment. And Nixon, being a young veteran, an officer, a naval officer, had uh, a lot in common with the young legislators, the young members of the House, and some of the younger senators who had served in the Second World War, and who would have a natural affinity towards a fellow vet, and would have a degree of deference towards an officer, 
and particularly someone who had risen as fast as Nixon had. So Nixon, Nixon had a lot going for him. And then, again, he was kind of a no-name, so he didn't present any kind of a threat to Eisenhower's control of his new party. All right, so uh, wait, let me just say, ask one other question on this point. Would you say that it was more of a sense of, I mean, he is a somewhat centrist right-wing person. Which one? Eisenhower. Um, I mean, a center-right, I mean. and But would you say that it was more people's response to his personal qualities rather than his politics that got him elected? I think uh, in, in American politics, especially since Wilson, uh, reserve, aloofness, intellectualism are viewed with mistrust and dislike. Um, I think the American president has to exude enthusiasm, geniality, and uh, a quality of oneness with the American people. I mean, people might say, well, what about Trump? I mean, he doesn't seem like genial at all. I can't stand him. I mean, I look at his picture. I, I, I want to turn off the television or I want to throw away, you know, the device that I'm looking at his picture on. But Trump is, is, is very engaging. I mean, he goes to those speeches. He smiles a lot. He uh, has a lot of interaction with the, the uh, people gathered there. He clearly speaks to people sitting in their living rooms watching him on TV or looking at him on their computer screens. Uh, the big knock on Hillary was that she was a bad campaigner, meaning she was seen as stiff, somewhat uh, shrill, and certainly not engaging on a personal level. So, so I don't know... Uh, I I think I pretty much set set the mold. I mean, he brought a new degree of geniality to the presidency. You know that famous Ike grin that we still talk about. Right. You know, after what is it, seventy years or fifty years since he uh, left the presidency? Almost seventy years. Uh, yeah, you know, and, and again, big slogan. I like Ike. You know, uh, he was he he wasn't seen as an aloof father figure. He was seen more like your favorite uncle. You know, the one who wants you to sit by him, the one who gives you pie, the one who wants to talk to you when you go to the family picnic. All right, so let's get into the president. Wait, do you want us? Um, let's yeah, let's get let's start in on the presidency first term. Um, does he start? Uh, do you have any place you want to start off? So we have, we have we have a, a a distinct political trend in each of uh, his subsequent elections. Roosevelt's well, thirty six he got stronger, but after after he was reelected in thirty six when he ran for the third and fourth term, in each election Roosevelt got weaker. Uh, Truman barely eked out an electoral win in 1948 and lost control of the House. Mm -hmm. So there definitely was a trend towards the Republicans. 36, uh, 36 was a big landslide victory. Yeah, for the Dems. And then, and then 40 was a pretty big win. For they the won, but it was less. And then 44? I mean, now, now Roosevelt's really struggling. Even against Dewey? Well, Dewey was a dynamic candidate. All right, so then 48, we know Truman has the newspaper, and it says Dewey beat him. But Dewey wins, yeah. Right. So that's like by a horse's hair. 
So now going into 52, you think the Republicans are in the ascendancy? So, the, you know, people were ready for a change. Um, they didn't have an incumbent to vote for for the first time since 1936. Right. And Eisenhower was close to being uh, an incumbent because he had been a general. He had been in the top echelons of, of the American federal government. So, uh, in, in, in some respects, uh, Stevenson was, was more of an unknown, more of a discon, con, discontinuity. Eisenhower, even though he was the opposing party, in some respects was a con, ton, contin, continuity with uh, the national government, which had been in power. And fortuitously, I think, Eisenhower was unwilling to attack the New Deal. Mm -hmm. I mean, A, he recognized that the New Deal programs were very popular. And in attacking them, he was stirring up people's memories. He would have been. He didn't attack them. Had, had Eisenhower attacked the New Deal programs, he would have stirred up memories of Hoover, would have kind of uh, allied himself with Hoover, who was still very, very unpopular. Mm -hmm. um, he would have set the Democrats inalterably against him. Mm -hmm. In his willingness to institutionalize the New Deal programs by giving them Republican can you Can you just support. remind listeners the major programs of the New Deal? The big one, of course, is Social Security. Right. Uh, farm subsidies, uh, rural, rural electrification, uh, and a few other things, you know, unemployment insurance. Medicare? Uh, Medicare didn't come until Johnson. Okay. So... Uh, some subsidies for health. And did Truman put in the GI Bill? Truman put in the GI Bill. Eisenhower backed it. So he has a kind of progressive aspect. At least he'll preserve the progressive... Progressive republicanism. Right. He'll preserve the progressive uh, advancements. All right. So he's maintaining that. What about um, the... Um, either you can talk about the McCarthyism... Of the time and how he dealt with that, or you might want to touch that later. You can go on to the interstates. Do you want to talk about Korea, China? So I want I want to kind of stick with the political part first, okay. and then we'll go into those other separate issues. So uh, fifty-four Democrats regained control of the House of Representatives. They only lost it by a little bit, though. Right, but they regained it by fifty-four. So Eisenhower's intuition about the New Deal seemed pretty uh, right on. It seemed pretty much he was right about that because even though the Democrats took back the House of Representatives, even though that renewed the people's uh, idea that they should preserve the New Deal, Eisenhower's personal popularity remained very high. Uh, in 1954, the Supreme Court heard and ruled on uh, the famous Brown versus Topeka landmark civil rights case and ordered school desegregation. This created a major political problem for Eisenhower. I mean, we all know that uh, the first, one of the first school districts to be ordered to desegregate was the Little Rock, Arkansas school district. Mm -hmm. And that the white citizens met that order with a tremendous show of force and that Eisenhower ordered the army to uh, deploy troops in Little Rock, Arkansas, state capital, one of the 50, well then 48 sovereign states and to protect black school children desegregating an all-white high school. 
So on that part, on that question of civil rights, Eisenhower, even being Republican, stood on the side of the. Uh, oh well, a lot of the. All right, stood on the side of the um, desegregationists. Well, he was following a court order. He's the president. He had to follow the court order. Uh, for Eisenhower, the big problem was that schools are locally controlled. And he thought that white Southerners would abandon the public schools pretty much en masse in the South if they proceeded too quickly and aggressively with desegregation. That basically all the white parents would send their kids to uh, religious segregation academies or to private schools and that he would be left with a, an officially desegregated school system, but one in which uh, segregation continued and the public school system was starved because white parents were now sending their kids to schools which uh, charged tuition. So that was, that was his, probably his biggest political problem in getting ready to run for re-election and campaigning for support uh, of, of other Republican candidates. I, I just, I, I mean, I was looking at things, and I don't know if you think that this was a big element in it, but interestingly enough, the the um, wing of his administration, or the thought possibly in his administration, was that the in order to fight communism racial discrimination would have to be confronted because according to people in Eisenhower's administration, people were using, I mean, communists were using racial discrimination as a point of propaganda in order to, let's say, uh, you know, um, blacken the uh, Western societies. So in confronting racial discrimination, they were also protecting themselves against uh, attacks from propagandists. Unquestionably, Eisenhower made that argument that uh, our, our segregated society is an embarrassment, that the communists are using it against us, uh, that we're giving them all sorts of propaganda points. But when you read the accounts of African students who studied in Moscow during the same period, they almost universally expressed disgust over the, the blatant, overt, malicious, aggressive racism of the Russians. You know, black people living in Moscow during this period were routinely subjected to racial assaults, racial invective, catcalling, being pushed, being struck. Uh, and, they, and, and they all said it. I mean, none of them. I mean, there's no uh, African or Latin black leader who went to Moscow to study under any of their fraternal uh, development plans who doesn't who doesn't describe that okay let me ask on another point since we're on, on topics that have similar I mean we'll say resonance today Eisenhower also brought and this is something that Trump referred to in the campaign uh, in 2016 Eisenhower had something that was called Operation Wetback where he started to and I'm trying to figure out what was the impetus for it. He started to uh, bring in a lot of deportations. And I was looking at a graph where deportations, illegal border crossings and deportations were something like under about 80,000 a year leading up to this um, move. And then they spiked right after the move, uh, this, this uh, new, I think at the time it was called the, um, it wasn't called, 
USCIS, it was called the uh, INS, right? Yeah. And they spike to right around a million or over a million. And then within two or three years, they go back down to pre, like, you know, about 80,000 deportations again a year. What, what motivated Eisenhower, do you think, to determine that the border all of a sudden was a big issue that he needed to address? So first of all, Trump being Trump would use a term like wetback. Nobody back then would have said that. No, that not, I don't think it's Trump. I don't think Trump talked. That was something that I saw in an article. I don't think Trump brought up the term. All right, but, but nobody back then. I mean, that was something, I mean, you know, you whispered it, you know. You got slapped by your mother if you said something like that in public. Uh, that was an extremely derogatory and just completely un, out-of-bounds expression. Um, during the Second World War, uh, and, and back, back then they called the ag, uh, there was a lot of Mexican laborers. They were in agriculture, they were in construction, they were in road building. And apparently a lot of people had Mexican maids. But mostly they were maybe, and maybe in janitorial services. Uh, during the Second World War, because so many men were drafted into the armed forces, you know, over, over 10% of the population. And if you think of, of the cohorts, the age cohorts, it probably was over 50%. So you t took away half of the men who normally would have been working in those professions, or those occupations, rather. Somebody had to do that work. I mean, you just, I mean, farming needs labor. Yeah. So they basically uh, imported Mexicans, relaxed the border restrictions, and brought braceros. That was the term that there they was used a, for those. There was a period where... Temporary laborers brought braceros over to work in the fields, build houses, Immigration tends to have ebb and flow periods throughout the history of the United States. Prior to them relaxing the borders for agricultural workers in Mexico, was it a strict, you think it was a time of, after the... The 30s were extremely war? racist, so yeah, definitely, and, and it was a depression. They're not going to let Mexicans come in okay. and so take jobs away from whites. I mean, that's just not going to happen. Okay. You know, uh, so during the 40s, it was more relaxed. During the 50s, you know, the normal American attitudes reasserted themselves, you know, and, and I mean, we have a very racist history. Well, you know, it's a fact. Well, I don't know that you have to say that it's automatically racist to, to crack down on illegal border crossings, but... But it wasn't cracking down on border crossings. It was deporting people who were already here gainfully employed. I think it was both. I think it was both. Um... You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of, of of personal accounts of of people who are now in their sixties who were born during the nineteen fifties, who were born in Los Angeles, who were born in Houston, who were born in San Antonio, whose parents were Braceros, sure. Mexican sure. laborers brought over to uh, brought in to work in World War II, where the parents were sent back, but the kids were American citizens. I mean there's hundreds of accounts by people like that. So, it, it you know, the, the, the big issue was the people who more or less had settled here. Well, what I'm, what I'm I mean, I could, I wonder I mean, border crossings would drop when the soldiers came home and started taking their old jobs back. I mean, there's a lot to say whether or not how open the border should be. If the border is more open, it can actually create more circulation where Mexican workers come in and... And go and back. Go they back. make what they want but, and they go back. It says, it says this here um, on Wikipedia. The program was implemented in 54 by Attorney General Herbert Brown, uh, Brownell and utilized special tactics to deal with illegal border crossings. 
into the United States by Mexican nationals. The program became a contentious issue in Mexican-United States relations, even though it originated from a request by the Mexican government to stop the illegal entry of Mexican laborers into the United States. It probably became a more contentious issue after we started deporting. I mean, it's one, like I said, it's one thing to stop border crossings. It's another thing to deport people. Oper- and, and so it says the name wetback was a disparaging term applied to illegal entrants who supposedly entered the United States by swimming the Rio Grande. It became a derogatory term applied generally to Mexican laborers, including those who were legal residents. Similarly, the 1855 Greaser Act was so known based on the anti-Mexican slur Greaser. They sent the Mexicans to unfamiliar parts of Mexico and they struggled to get home, which created a big problem. Um, Operation Wetback... That could have been a problem with Operation Wetback, too, that it trapped people from more southern states... In Chihuahua and Sonora. Yeah, Coahuila. sure. Well, Operation Whitbeck was the culmination of more than a decade of intensifying immigration enforcement. Immigration enforcement actions, removals and returns, rose rapidly... Is rap- there another name for it besides that? Let's not That's use That's what that. it's calling it. Rose rapidly from a low of 12,000 in 1940. I don't... I don't. If that's what they're calling it, that's what they're calling it. I mean, you, you don't have to... I don't know that you you would want to change. Well, going from twelve thousand to what? In forty two to seven hundred twenty seven thousand in nineteen fifty two, the final year of the Truman administration. Enforcement actions continued to rise under Eisenhower until reaching a peak of one point one million in nineteen fifty four, the year of Operation Wetback. Enforcement actions then fell by more than ninety percent in fifty five, fifty six, and fifty seven where they were down to 69,000, the lowest number since 1944. So we, we can probably infer that they were deporting people, if you know, if we're looking at those kinds of numbers. That there's probably, you know, a few tens of thousands of people coming over. During the Second World War, there's probably hundreds of thousands of people coming over annually until they reached, you know, whatever the population was, you know, a million, a million and a half. Well, I just don't... Uh, of, of Mexican immigrants into the United States. And then we chased them all out. Uh, that, that was those actions you're talking right. about. And then it dropped back to, you know, the normal border crossings. I mean, it's a racist name. I don't, I don't like the idea necessarily that it's racist. If they came on a government agreement between United States and Mexico and then Mexico says I'm not saying it was implemented correctly but then Mexico says alright well bring them back or send them back it's most likely going to be done by force and also I, I just think that it's strange that certain immigration actions are associated with racism and other ones aren't like you're saying oh well that was racist that was based on racist attitudes because it was a high number of deportations if Mexico wanted his people back, why wouldn't they just broadcast it? Say, hey, come back to Mexico. We want you back. How are they going to broadcast wouldn't, it? Wouldn't they just go back? On a, what, Mexican radio station sure. in the United States? Mexican American radio station? Sure. It doesn't work. Like, I don't know that it works like that. You know, buy time on the Los Angeles Spanish language stations. What ends up happening a lot is that the... Why do that when you could just tell the U.S. government, all right, time to end the program. Well, a, it's a lot cheaper... And Unless the U.S. INS is B, paying for it, then that's free. B, it's a lot easier. I mean, and C, why would you subject your citizenry to I think, yeah, I agree. You know, I understand forceful deportation when I, you just invite them to come home? I understand what you're saying. What, what I was going to say is that I don't like this. Some, it's hot. People just, it seems like, arbitrarily associate different deportation actions with racism. Obama still has the most deportations of any president nobody claims that he's he was acting in a racial way eisenhower has a lot and you're saying well it was due to race racist attitudes i wouldn't i wouldn't give obama a free pass uh especially given what followed obama what happens a lot of times is you crack down on the border you make the border crossings more strict and then the people that are here in the United States working, they can't go back, or right. they decide, you know what, I'm not going to risk it because if I go back, it's going to be right. hard for me and they just, to work. They, again. they just pile up. And who knows the wages that they're making in Mexico? They got to be low. Right. 
So it's well, they're a twelfth of what they make here. It's just, I think it's somewhat complicated because it makes sense that if there's a program where they're bringing in agricultural workers to work during the war, and then the U.S. labor comes back in, that they that they would give the jobs. But the reason the reason I always suspect racism is that if they wanted to stop border crossings and they wanted people without papers to go back, all they have to do is turn off the jobs. All they have to do is find the Americans who are firing, who are hiring them. You know, you're hiring people without IRCA documentation. We're closing you down. We'll give you we'll give you two shots. The first time we find you, the second time we close you down. That would stop well, it. That's that's. I mean, you're saying. But we that, never do that. You're saying that, but the same time, it says it says that his Eisenhower's peak. Excuse me, Eisenhower's peak deportation year was fifty four. We had one point one million, right? In that same year where he had the one point, no, excuse me, in when he had the one point one million deportations in 54 in 56 the Bracero program was still going on and they gave the most temporary work permits that they had ever given up until that point 445,000 Mexican temporary worker permits in 56 so there is a, a, a seemingly exchange a seeming exchange between giving out the temporary work permits to Mexican entrants that are doing it according to the Bracero program and then also deport, deporting, although it does say that some of the deportations were Mexicans that were working legally. So this, it, I don't know if it's an overlap or, or what. Maybe it's just poor implementation. I don't know. All right. So let's go on. So right, wait, let's hang on a second. So that, I just wanted to bring it up because it's been a lot. It's been, it's not the first time that America has had a rodeo at the southern border, let's say. Right. <laughs> Do you want to, let's go on, we're going to do one last episode because we have to deal with foreign policy, we have to deal with China, Korea, um, and basically the end of, the end of Eisenhower's second term and an assessment of him as a president, and we're not going to get it I think it's only going to take 20 minutes or so. Yeah, but we're already at at an hour, basically, so we'll do a last episode of half an hour. Okay. Do you have anything you want to uh, bring up as as far as concluding points to this third episode? Yeah, I want to, I want to do a segue into McCarthy for for the next episode. For the next episode, do you want to do it now or at the beginning yeah, of the next? Oh, go ahead. Is it on? Yeah. All right. So um, at this point, I, we 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 want to shift the program back towards the broader issues of the Eisenhower administration. Um, we've been talking about the political change in American public opinion, uh, the reorientation of the, of the parties. And at this point, I think it's, it's worthwhile to introduce uh, Senator Joe McCarthy of Wisconsin, a conservative Republican, so-called tail gunner Joe, who was a, a sergeant in the United States Army Air Corps, uh, flew in the tail gun, the tail compartment, of B-17s bombing Germany and who uh, brought a particularly virulent and intolerant type of anti-communism into Washington and dominated dominated a large segment of the Republican Party uh, with the, uh, what he termed as an anti-communist crusade. Uh, the difficulty being that the anti-communist crusade smeared a great many people who weren't communists, weren't even communist fellow travelers, as they called them back then, but who were Democrats who the Republicans wanted to get out of politics. Um, Eisenhower had a lot of difficulty politically and personally in dealing with McCarthy and uh, we'll end up this segment with that and then pick up on that with our next segment. All right. So in the next segment, we're going to cover the, the um, 
domestic infrastructure. We'll go. We'll do McCarthy and we'll do foreign affairs. And then Eisenhower. Looking back on Eisenhower and an analysis of him as a president. Very good. All right. So thanks for listening. This was Philip and Robert, and we look forward to any of your comments. And we hope you enjoyed it. Uh, good day to you all. <laughs>